What does being an American mean to you? These days, it can mean a variety of things, from shameless pride in American exceptionalism to shame and circumspection as we grapple with the country's constant struggle with living up to its promise. The point is, what we think and feel about our country is just as multifaceted as its people. And when it comes to patriotism, it's about more than who can fly the biggest flag more proudly than his neighbor. Like the principles and values we each cherish within ourselves, our love of country is neither a contest nor a competition. It's not a badge to show off nor a cudgel to brandish. On the contrary, patriotism is about being our best together. A commitment to individuals and communities flourishing in all ways across the nation. And if we can get it right, we can deal much better with every other challenge that confronts us. Have you ever admired a leader and wondered just what it is that makes her who she is? How he came to embrace the things that advanced him? Welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we look at the principles that define success. This is a show for leaders at all stages of their careers who aspire to understand what it truly means to be a leader. And who is a leader? Dolly Parton said, If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Together, we'll explore key principles, not only in the sense of fundamentals, but also in the ethical sense, the habits, character traits, and virtues that form the backbone of leadership. Principles that are just as relevant and essential in the 21st century as they were in the first century. This is Timeless Leadership. Hi there, and welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we explore principles and virtues that accompany successful and admirable leaders. I'm your host, Scott Monty. Now, feel free to listen to and follow the Timeless Leadership podcast wherever you get your shows. This is a show that comes out every other week, and then on alternative weeks, we put out Story Time. It's just a five-minute show that features familiar names and events from throughout history, but told from a much different perspective. It's all about storytelling, which is an essential skill that I think every leader needs to have. You can find the feed for that show through the Timeless and Timely newsletter at TimelessTimely.com. Feel free to poke around there and uh, subscribe to the newsletter as well as the podcast. And uh, hopefully it'll help you think a little differently about some of the challenges that you face as a leader every day. And if there are leaders in your life that you think need to listen to Timeless Leadership or read the Timeless and Timely newsletter, please direct them to the site. We actually have a feature for paying subscribers. I'm opening up a monthly regular video call that you can join if you like leadership advice in a video call setting. Now, the price is going up soon. Right now, it's just $5 a month, and it's a great time to become a paying subscriber to Timeless and Timely. It's not often you get to engage with a practical philosopher. True philosophers are a dime a dozen, but Tom Morris goes a step beyond and connects the timeless ideas of Western and Eastern thought and makes them tangible and applicable for today's issues. He's the author of over 30 groundbreaking books, including If Harry Potter Ran General Electric, Socrates in Silicon Valley, and Plato's Lemonade Stand, as well as a half dozen novels. Moreover, Tom is a legendary speaker whose electrifying talks re-engage people around their deepest values and reignite their passion for work and life. And in his latest work, Tom has turned his attention to an important aspect of American life that needs urgent and vital attention. How we can put aside our differences for the sake of the country. It's the topic of 
the everyday patriot. How to be a great American now. Tom Morris, welcome to Timeless Leadership. Thank you, sir. Good to be here. I should say, welcome back. You, my friend, are the first guest we've had who has made a repeat appearance. Oh, my goodness. That's quite an honor. You were with us on season one. I think it was episode six where we talked about wisdom and your background as a philosopher and as a, well, really as a practical philosopher, and you've put it into use uh, in front of audiences all over the world, in front of major corporations, and through your wonderful books like um, Plato's Lemonade Stand and uh, If uh, Aristotle Ran General Motors. So uh, great, great inspiration. And now we're going to be talking about something a little bit different. And I thought it was so timely that this new book came out, The Everyday Patriot, How to Be a Great American Now. We're just coming off of the Independence Day holiday uh, here in the United States. And here's this book all about patriotism. It just seemed, as we like to say on the newsletter, very timely. <laughs> how did it come about and how is it that it's coming out right now? Well, this is a this is a great story. I'm really glad you asked because uh, I've never been a specialist in social and political philosophy. As long as I've been a philosopher, that's not been my area of expertise. But uh, you may remember back in 2001, um, after 9-11 happened, after that terrible tragedy, there came to be a discussion in the nation for a while about patriotism. A lot of the population was becoming more patriotic in reaction to response to that event. That attack on America was making Americans come out and say, you know, let's defend America. Let's 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 be proud Americans. And the other group was saying, whoa, slow down. Uh, You're going to be the exact kind of uh, xenophobic, jingoistic, uh, militant nationalists that the uh, terrorists themselves are. You know, uh, patriotism is dangerous in a connected age like ours. So there was this big debate going on. I paid attention to it like everybody else. A few months passed, and an old friend called me up, the famous television producer, Norman Lear, whom I had known for, you know, since I was 39 years old. And he was uh, about my current age. He was 69. I just turned 70. Uh, Norman called me up one day and said, hey, Tom, I just bought a copy of the Declaration of Independence for $8 million. (laughs) I said, Norman, I got mine for $4.95 at Barnes & Noble. He said, that's very funny, Tom. He said, listen, a guy bought it at a yard sale. He was looking for a frame. He could reframe a picture he had at his house. He sees this nice frame with a terrible picture in it. It's $4. He buys it, gets it home, takes it apart. Inside is a Dunlap broadside of the Declaration of Independence, printed the night of July 4th, 1776, one of 200 printed to be sent around the colonies and read in public places. He said, we only need 24 of them to exist, and they were all in museums, places like that. He said, I had a chance to buy this one, and he said, I had to have it, not to put in my house, but to send on a road trip across America so that everybody, regardless of where they live, can see the nation's birth certificate for themselves. And he said, look, would you consider writing a speech, a real stem winder? You could travel with the document, and at every stop, you give a speech about patriotism in America. I said, whoa, Norman, that's an amazing, that's an amazing idea. And he said, so go go reread the declaration, put together something, and we're going to talk. I said, okay. So a couple weeks later, I'm writing a speech. I get another call. He said, well, got some news for you. Had to turn it over to a team. And word got out in Hollywood what we were going to do. And now all the top actors and actresses want to be a part of it. And my team says, okay, who's going to draw the bigger crowd? Your friend, the philosopher, or the hottest names in Hollywood? So he said, you may get to stay home after all. I said, Norman, I'm going to turn it into a little book. He said, we'll sell it in connection with the road trip, wherever we're, we, we are that has a shop, like a maritime museum, they have a little shop or something like that. And, and so we did it, but it was a limited printing. Um, there was a limited number of places where they stopped that there was a shop. So not me, but one man bought 3,000 copies in 2002 because he liked the book. <laughs> and, 
he was a superintendent of schools and wanted to give it to all his teachers. And uh, this was 2002. I had breakfast with the guy three months ago for the first time in, in all these years. And he said, you know, that little book you did in 2002 in connection with Norman Lear's Declaration of Independence. He said, I think you need to rewrite it for our time now. We face very different challenges to our nation, but so many of the themes of your book, Redone, could be exactly what we need to hear. I said, I'll give it some consideration. I went back and read my little book. I thought, oh man. So I spent every day, all day for two, two months, two and a half months rewriting the text. And now it's published on the 4th of July. What a, what a story. Born on the 4th <laughs> of July, I like it. Uh, well, I, gosh, Tom, there's so much to unpack there, as there usually is in talking with you. Um, yeah. First of all, Norman Lear. I mean, yeah. how how did you get to know Norman Lear? <laughs> yeah, that's the backstory behind the backstory. I mean, I was a I was a professor at Notre Dame at the time. I was an assistant professor, associate professor before I became a full professor. So I was a young guy. And uh, I saw in the newspaper, there's going to be a new show by Norman Lear. Now, I grew up watching all of the family, you know, and my family would always argue afterward. My mother would say, well, you know, there was something to what Archie was saying. And my father would say, how can you say that? And so our family did exactly what he had hoped for with that show. Well, um, so I definitely tuned into his new CBS show called Sunday Dinner. This was back in the, I guess it was in the 80s or 90s. And uh, it was a great comedy about a family that represented a new age uh, 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 person, a conservative Christian, a Jew, an atheist around Sunday dinner, arguing with each other. It was perfect Norman Lear. I thought it was really well done, but it could have been better done. So I watched, I taped it and I watched again, the end of the tape said act three productions, Los Angeles, California. So I called up the operator in Los Angeles, give me act three productions. She said, they got 16 numbers. I said, which one do you want? I said, how many can you give me? I can give you six. Okay. Give me the first six. And I leave messages on all the voicemails. Right. And it was a week later, I go into my office, my lights blinking on my phone. Uh, Professor Mars, can I get into your class next semester, please? Then my wife, can you bring home some milk and eggs uh, later? And then, hey, Tom, this is Norman Lear. Here's my home phone number. Give me a call. <laughs> so next thing you know, I'm talking to Norman Lear. Uh, Tom, yeah, I offered my services as an advisor to their show to make it an even better show because my area was philosophy of religion. That's what they were doing. And he said, I got bad news about the show. And I said, what's that, Norman? He said, they canceled it already. I said, really? I said, we're not going to let that stop us, are we, Norman? He said, you're darn right, we're not. And next thing you knew, he was flying me to his vacation house in Vermont. He was coming to my speeches in, La in Las Vegas. He was going with me to a speech in California, taking me to his house in L.A. And we were getting to be good buddies because he said, Tom, I finally discovered the two most important things in life are ethics and spirituality. And I never knew that before. My life could have been so much better if I had just understood ethics and spirituality. I wow. said, wow, Norman, that's, that's the kind of philosophy I do. It's all, about, it's all about that. It's all about the wisdom side of things. And so we kind of bonded over that. And throughout the years, uh, we've had this amazing uh, friendship. So he's about to turn 100. And uh, we talked not too long ago. He's just as active and lively the last time we talked as ever. So it's been a quite a relationship. And it gets me involved in all kinds of crazy things like writing about patriotism. Well, that's fantastic. And you know what's really interesting to me? He said he's really into ethics and spirituality. And effectively, that's exactly where patriotism lives, at the intersection of ethics and spirituality. Absolutely right. And most people don't see that at all. They don't understand that patriotism is about caring for people. It's about caring for your community. It's about building good things where you live. It's really my metaphor in the book. I have many metaphors in the book, but one of the metaphors is that of a garden. Patriotism isn't us against them. It's not adversarial, xenophobic, jingoistic, militaristic. It's about growing your garden wherever you live and making it as beautiful and as productive as it can be, not only for your own sake, but for the sake of your neighbors and for the sake of those around you. I have in the book what I call the inner circle principle. It comes from the ancient Greeks, of course, that with any governance, 
We need to govern first our own hearts and minds. We need to govern our spirits. Then we need to govern our own households well and beautifully and offer that to the greater community and offer our communities up and our neighborhoods up to our towns and cities and states and our country. That's what patriotism is all about. And then we can offer our country up to the world as a contributor to something good on a global scale. So you're right, it's all about ethics and spirituality and everybody seems to be missing that right now. Yeah, yeah. And and effectively, I mean that's that undergirds leadership. And and I want to get back to this question in in just a moment of is patriotism a form of leadership? I want you to sit on that for a minute, okay? Yeah, okay. Um before I do that though, um in recent years and certainly since 2001, uh, we, we've seen this growth of patriotism, as you've said, and, and really in the last, I don't know, five to ten years, let's say, patriotism seems more politically charged. It seems as if one side or another is claiming to own patriotism as a brand identity, if you will, and that they and only they are the true patriots. And it... it, it really strikes me as very similar to what the founding fathers were going through when you had the Federalists and the, mm -hmm. uh, the Republican Democrats who were battling, you know, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, that, you know, who is the greater patriot? And, and there, of course, you had the two of them, Adams and Jefferson, dying on the same day, on July 4th, 1826, 50 years to the day after the signing or the, the dating of the Declaration of Independence, two of our greatest early founding fathers, perhaps two of our greatest patriots, couldn't see eye to eye politically as to how the country was supposed to work. So take us through this. Is, is patriotism really owned by one side or another how does that actually play out yeah it, it, it looks like the old childhood adolescent game of capture the flag doesn't it you know it's my flag no it's my flag and you know we we regret partisanship we regret factionalism and yet we see it going on from the earliest days as you said you know john adams got pretty discouraged and his wife uh, abigail had to write him some encouraging uh, letters uh, to, you know, hang in there. Uh, There's a tide in the affairs of men, which taken at the flood leads on to fortune. She quoted Shakespeare, uh, Julius Caesar. Uh, we must take this current, she was saying to him, you know, hang in there. Yes, everybody's disagreeing about everything, but you can bring these people together. You can help make it happen. You know, you miss your home, you miss your family, you miss your farm. We all miss you, but do this job that needs to be done. And it's funny, in my own small, minuscule way, I had to take the same attitude in writing this book. Like I said, I spent sort of all day, every day for a couple months when I should have been doing other things. I could have been doing other things, but I felt a sense of obligation. I felt a sense of a rising tide of people saying, you know, we've taken partisanship, divisiveness about as far as you can take it and still have a country. What are we going to do next? What are we going to do now? And so I wanted to take people back to our founding document to see the ideals and values that should guide our next steps into the future. Because Often, and I know you and I are kindred spirits in this way, we find our greatest light for the future shed by the beacons of the past. And so if we can make that available to more people, what was the Declaration talking about? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What's this all about? How do we embrace that? Because our founders were very philosophical individuals, and they knew not just the, some of the recent philosophers like John Locke and some of the Scottish philosophers. They, they knew Plato and Aristotle. They, they were grounded in the classics. And, and, and Plato, for example, I was in, uh, I was in the Ritz-Carlton uh, Battery Park uh, in New York City. Uh, with uh, Hewlett Packard's Board of Advisors for the Americas, the chief technology information officers for all the biggest corporations that Hewlett Packard works with. We were having breakfast in this beautiful private dining room overlooking the Statue of Liberty, which is just outside the windows there. And uh, the, the topic of politics naturally came up. 
And I said at one point in the conversation of about 10 CIOs, CTOs, I said, uh, we know Aristotle thought that politics was the noblest endeavor about how best to live well together. And almost everybody at the table choked on their toast and eggs. And I thought one guy was going to spit his coffee out his nose. There was this, there was this loud laugh around the table. And one guy says, how did we fall so far? How best to live well together? And I said, yeah, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Because you read Aristotle's politics and he has a formula. Now, he never makes it this succinct because, as you know, uh, Aristotle's works are his lecture notes for his advanced students. So he wasn't he wasn't tweeting. He wasn't writing, you know, brief uh, posts for Facebook or even writing a polished book. So I have to use my own words to make sense of his major ideas sometimes. And one major idea that leaps out at me from the politics is this. The highest human accomplishments always come from people in partnership for a shared purpose. People, plural, in partnership, a certain kind of collaborative relationship for shared purpose, living well together in this case, right? So he believed, Aristotle believed that every great thing in life happens from a plurality of people. It isn't the lone genius out there who makes it happen. It's people together, not just Jefferson, not just Franklin, not just Washington, not just uh, 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 Adams, not just, no, it's all of them together doing their own parts and collaborating despite their differences. That's That's the cool thing about collaboration. It doesn't mean everybody agrees on everything. It means you're able to set aside the things you can't settle to deal with the things you can agree on and make progress on those. And and I think therein lies the genius of how the founding fathers put together our documents, the Declaration of Independence, certainly, and the Constitution. Because if you left it up to Alexander Hamilton, or if you left it up to James Madison, or Thomas Jefferson or John Adams, things could have gone wildly in a completely different direction. And in some ways, they were each other's checks and balances before we had governmental checks and balances. And that's what a good organization does, right? Um, so when, when you're talking about all of these, these men coming together, and they were men at the time, um, unfortunately, um, that was just the reality of the situation. But the women were um, behind the scenes, like well, Abigail, pushing them, pushing them, pushing them. <laughs> exactly, and, and you know, thank goodness for for some of that. But they they all came together. Um, they they obviously had a sense of patriotism of of their newfound country, even though their country didn't belong to them yet. They were still uh, being controlled by uh, merry old England. Um, how how did they chart a course forward? You know, you've, you've got all these competing minds at the table, brilliant minds, all leaders in their own right. How is it that they actually manage to form a consensus through all of this? Well, you know, it's funny because I've often thought of philosophy as cartography of the spirit, a kind of a map making for the human journey. I like that. And, uh, you know, like with all cartography, we get the big things right way before we get the little things right. And I think they had the wisdom to concentrate on the big things. Let's just, let's take care of the big things together. We'll worry about the little things later. That way they broke through all the impasses that await us when we insist on continuous mud wrestling with the little things. That's a great point. And and you look at what's going on today in our political spheres. There are, there are people out there, like quote-unquote leaders out there, political leaders, who are harping every day, who are trolls, essentially, yeah, you know, right. trolling us online when you've got a, a smaller number of political leaders who are trying to fix the big things, who are trying to address something as big as the January 6th coup uh, or attempted coup on the United States government. Um, and it, it's like there are serious minds and there are minds that uh, clearly are not, are certainly not serious thinkers, but they're not serious leaders either. Right. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's, uh, you would, to, to look at some of these folks' Twitter feeds, for example, some of our elected representatives in the highest offices in the nation 
And you would think that the biggest threat to humanity right now is critical race theory or, you know, whether vaccinations are safe or not. Uh, There are all these distracting issues around what's taught in the schools and around conspiracy theories that have no grounding in real evidence. And yet some of our real elected representatives are stirring up dust about this Pascalian diversions, Pascalian distractions away from the crucial issues that are obvious to most voters when they aren't enthralled by the mythology of all these conspiracy theories. And again, we're going to have to, that's what I'm trying to do in the book, The Everyday Patriot, is bring people back to the big ideas, the big ideas. You know, it's it's a funny thing. Uh, Somebody, uh, Cory Booker, I think it was, circulating a video recently about a guy who worked for the CDC and was trying to do some investigations about gun issues, gun safety, and, 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 problems that resulted, um, deaths and injuries around around gun safety issues. And uh, there was a man in Congress who argued for the defunding of that research. Uh, The CDC is all about diseases. You know, I don't think uh, any gun has been ever called a disease, you know, that kind of thing. And um, they were mortal enemies, he says in the video, the CDC uh, guy says, and he he actually was called into the uh, congressman's office one day and he didn't want to go. Um, and, but he went not to make the man even matter. And he saw pictures of the guys, the congressman's kids on the wall. And he started asking him about his kids and he, he, he got all excited about telling him about his kids. And then he asked the CDC scientist about his kids. By the end of the hour, they were buddies over what they cared most about their children. They became friends for years and years and years, and the congressman ultimately changed his mind about funding research about gun safety because they bonded over something big in both their lives. The guy who used to send me out for a lot of speeches, uh, he now has a very boutique small agency and represents a guy who is famous for talking people out of the Ku Klux Klan. He's an African-American guy who has an amazing track record wow. of getting people to leave the Klan. And he basically just bonds with them over shared values. He finds out what really matters to them in his life. And he's been the best man for a white supremacist who, who abandoned his uh, racism and asked this guy to be best man at his wedding. I mean, wow. if we f- learn to focus on the big things, we can move forward in positive ways. That's what I'm trying to help people do with this new. Yeah, and that's that's really interesting because I think what I referenced before this trolling and what you referenced with the, you know these hot button issues. This is grievance politics. It is. And and my latest newsletter is all about anger and grievances. And if we carry those around like a burden, it actually encumbers us. It makes it impossible for us to do the real heavy lifting with the bigger issues like you just talked about. so And you wonder uh, why people carry these things around, but C.S. Lewis had a great diagnosis in his famous little story, The Great Divorce, which is about a bus trip from hell to heaven. And uh, people are shown around heaven, and uh, the, the end of the trip comes, and the bus driver basically tells them, you know, you can stay here if you want to. And they say, come on, you're kidding me. This place is great. You know, I can't believe how much better it is than the place we've been. And he says, all you have to give up is whatever sent you to the other place. Whether it was bitterness, resentment, hatred, lust, whatever it was, all you have to do is give it up and you can stay here. And the surprise in the story is that they all end up being like um, Milton Satan, who said, evil be thou my good. They had accepted as counterfeit goods in their lives the feeling that being angry at somebody else gives them, the feeling that being resentful or bitter and having an enemy gives them, that had become their good and had become so entwined in their personalities, they could not give it up for a true good. So I use that story in the preface of The Everyday Patriot to say, you know what? Some folks in our country are going to have to give up some counterfeit goods to open themselves up to the real goods that will allow us to move forward really well together. 
And that's, that is hard to do. I mean, some of this activity, certainly a lot of it takes place online. Mm-hmm. And I think you see people being more virulent, yeah. uh, more aggressive against each other online because, you know, you don't have to sit down with someone yeah. and make nice. You don't have to observe pictures of their kids on their office right. walls. Right. Um, and and this, this level of enragement yeah. um, is, is basically... Uh, keeping people from, uh, from, from you know, dropping this this veil, yeah. and and keeping them in the moment. So, uh, you know, it's it, it's, you know, enragement equals engagement, and we've seen yeah. studies like mm-hmm. this time and again that this is what keeps people engaged online. Facebook knows it, Twitter knows it, all the platforms know it, and yeah. anger sells. Well, you right? know, uh, Plato's got some interesting stuff, very controversial stuff in the Republic. He has Socrates talking about, you know, creating an ideal society. And one of the things is he says, we can't just let the poets say whatever they want because the poets depict the gods as having all kinds of vile properties. And then people will want to be like the gods and they'll want to take up all these uh, terrible things that the gods are represented as doing. I think that's perfectly okay. So we've got to have steep censorship in, in this society, really severe. We can't even let the musicians play songs of certain rhythms because that won't uh, uh, support courage, you know, in our citizens. And so you, you, you say to yourself, Socrates, what are you talking about? But you look at our time, how we've allowed the technology of social media to arise with no thought about how it affects the body politic, how it affects the health of the society. Maybe Socrates was on one extreme here. Maybe we're on another extreme. And what you just mentioned, Scott, so important in the Iliad, there's this amazing scene where two guys are about to fight one-on-one in, on the plane outside Troy. And one guy says, wait, before we engage, I've watched you today. You're amazing. You're an impressive warrior. I've got to know who you are. And, and the guy says, what are you talking about? I'm going to kill you. And the guy says, no, 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 no. Please just at least tell me who you are. What's your story? Why are you so great? And the guy says, okay. And he says, where he's from. He says who his father was, who his grandfather was. And the other guy says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Who was your grandfather? He says again, my grandfather and your grandfather were best friends. Then they can't fight. They switch armor on the battlefield so their their comrades will know that they have made peace with each other. Uh, It's an amazing scene because they got to know each other as human beings, not as adversaries, not as representatives of the other side. So you can imagine, uh, Scott, as I was writing a book about all these fraught issues, I had to write in such a way that no Republican is going to say, oh, this guy's a Democrat. I'm not listening to him. And no Democrat's going to say, oh, this guy's a Republican. I'm not listening to him. I have to find those areas where every potential reader will say, wow, this is good stuff. This makes a lot of sense. To bring back those big ideas that, that bring us together. Yeah. And, and what you're talking about basically is how we can find common ground for the common good. And it reminds me of a book by um, someone who uh, you quoted on, on the cover of your book, um, Michael Sandel. Oh, yeah. Michael Sandel, his book, The Tyranny of Merit. How can we find the common good? Really good stuff. That's exactly it. Yeah. And and there seems to be this this need right now to, to just kind of drop the artifice, drop the, the combativeness and find out exactly what it is that we need to be working on together that actually where we can find common ground. And I think we saw this just weeks ago with it's just a sliver right now. And it got obliterated with uh, the Fourth of July weekend happenings. But uh, the progress on uh, gun safety. Oh, yeah. To and, make and, any and, progress and, at all was an amazing turnaround. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So and, it, you know, is that going to be where the, the, the fruit dies on the vine? Maybe. But it's something at least right and we can we can start to notch these baby steps because we're not going to solve all of this stuff in one bite no. in one fell swoop no that, you're absolutely right in fact that's the irony of the situation it's the big things that help us take the right small steps but when we immerse ourselves in the trivia of the little things, we never know what step to take. We can never take it together. Um, and yet it's the big things that bring us together. I've often said the worse things get, the more of an optimist I become. 
because people can tolerate unbelievably bad circumstances until things get literally intolerable. And then it's a swing of the pendulum back from that direction and extremity to which it's been uh, trending. It starts to come back. So that's what I'm seeing the beginnings of right now in our culture. That is really, really interesting to me uh, because we're seeing so many people who are almost giving up hope. Um, and, and a recent uh, piece I wrote, I, I quoted uh, Dante uh, in, in the Inferno. Uh, he, he, uh, he was about to enter the gates of hell, and over the gates was written, Abandon hope, all ye oh, who enter here. Yeah, yeah. Right? And without hope, what have you got? Yeah. Right? I mean, hope is basically faith and belief. And if you give up believing in anything, then you've got nothing to go on. And the, yeah. the pessimists always seem to like they're the smart people, right? Because they'll tell you exactly <laughs> yeah. why things aren't going to work. They'll yeah. tell you exactly all the things that have happened before and shoot down your, yeah. your, your hopes. Whereas when you're an optimist, you're basically asking people to take a leap of faith. You're asking them to believe in something that has not yet happened yeah. and to take it on good faith that together we're going to accomplish this. You we're, know, abs you're absolutely right. I was listening to NPR the other day and hearing an interview with the fourth great-grandchildren of, uh, I think it was Frederick Douglass. And uh, one of the uh, young people was saying um, that... Uh, pessimism is a tool of authoritarianism, is a tool of oppression. And it occurred to me, so is despair, so is despondency, so is hopelessness. They are tools of oppression. They are tools of authoritarianism. And I know so many people, good people, who when they heard I was doing my book, and these are people I'm close to, said, well, I've given up hope for America. They've actually said that sentence, well, I've given up hope for America. And I think really, really, uh, because you know the story of Pandora's box, which in Greek was really Pandora's big jar, right? She's given this gift box and she's told not to open it, which seems like a strange gift. But if you understand it's a jar, it was like an ornamental lid, lid that wasn't supposed to be taken off. But she's curious, which is a good quality to have. And then she goes her own way, which can be a good quality too. So she opens the, the jar, the box, and then all the evils come out and, and spread it throughout the world. But her curiosity doesn't stop. And her courage doesn't stop. And she looks back in and at the very bottom finds one thing left, and that is hope. I've always loved that ancient image because, yes, the world is full of ills. Yes, our country is beset by many troubles and difficulties that look impossible. But as Horace taught us, the greater the difficulty, the greater the glory. So I want to point people to that one thing left in the bottom of the jar. Let's use that hope. Let's keep it alive and let's put it to work in our time. I love that. So I, I wanted to, uh, I've got a couple of other things before we get back to that major question about the connection between patriotism and leadership. Um, one is uh, there was a film done, I think it was done during World War II, or just after World War II, and uh, it was called The House I Live In, and it starred Frank Sinatra. It was about 12 minutes long, and in it, it, it was centered around a song that he sung, uh, and he didn't write it. It was, uh, I think, uh, Earl Robinson and Lewis Allen wrote it, and he he basically is, is breaking up a fight of these kids in an alley um, because... Uh, there, one kid was an immigrant and was uh, being picked on and beaten up uh, because of that. And he sat down with all the boys and kind of helped them understand what it meant to be an American. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll provide a, a link in the show notes to the full lyrics, but uh, one of the things he says is, um, a place I work in, a worker by my side, a little town or city where my people lived and died. The howdy and the handshake, the air of feeling free, and the right to speak my mind out. That's America to me. And he goes through a number of uh, verses like that, and it just it comes down to, um, it's especially the people. That's America to me. And, uh, you know, America for uh, so long, 
so long has been uh, referred to as an idea. Uh, not just a country, but an idea. Uh, and it's an idea that is ever-evolving. And uh, how, does, how does patriotism as an ideal fit with America as an idea? Can you make that connection? Yeah, um, you know, it, it is interesting that um, when we talk about things like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, when we talk about the ideals of the Declaration, the ideals of the Founders, the first pushback you get right away from critics is, well, none of these things are realities in America. We're so unjust and there's, there's not nearly the liberty that, that people need. And there's not, and the, what do you mean pursuit of happiness? You know, we got all kinds of pushback because people forget that ideals are aspirational. They're, they're very seldom descriptive of actual behavior, but they're aspirational. They direct our behavior toward an end point, toward uh, uh, something that we may never actually get to per perfectly and probably won't and almost necessarily can't, but it sends us in the right direction. Absolutely. So, so America, it's a funny thing because you think of ideas or ideals as abstractions. In current America, it's almost as if people have become abstractions and the ideas that divide people have become the realities. We've got it backwards, upside down. Uh, America has always been founded on ideas, but it was ideas that could precisely bring together people. It's all about the people. That's what I like about that, uh, that song you just mentioned. It's about every tile in the mosaic, every piece in the puzzle is a person. And our ideas help us to design ways in which those pieces can fit together beautifully. So I see America as based on ideas, and I see patriotism as based on ideas and images and metaphors to help us live well together. That's what it's all about. It isn't about anybody having their ideology uh, uh, rule over everyone else. It's about how best to live well together with all our differences that in some instances can just enhance the beauty of the mosaic. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting there, this, this idea of aspiration I mean, this, this yeah. is what leaders do. They, they lead their people forward. You know, they, they don't, they don't uh, push them along. Typically, they, they're out there pulling from the front. Um, and when, when you think about our founding fathers again, and, and not only the Declaration of Independence, but the Constitution, the preamble to the Constitution says, we the people, in order to form a more perfect union, not a perfect union, a more perfect union, right? Forever striving to improve is what that means, yeah. right? Yeah. This is That's exactly right. what leaders need to do to lead their people forward because there's never an end point. I mean, there's goals along the way, but there's never an end point. We are ever improving, ever evolving, uh, ever evolving. And to me, my philosophy on personal growth is, you know, it's not that I hope to be a better person in general. I hope to be better today than I was yesterday and better tomorrow still, right? And, and repeat and, and rinse. You see, there's an ancient Hindu proverb that I've often uh, quoted and I've always loved. Uh, there is no nobility in being better than another man. The only true nobility is being better than your previous self. You know, this whole idea about making the most of what you have, it's not just about growth in general, right? Because cancer is a growth. Uh, it, it, it's about healthy growth with respect to your potential. And, you know, with leadership, the connection, again, between leadership and patriotism, patriotism is, is all about paying attention to what's close and cultivating that in order to affect what's far and can be affected by cultivating what's close. The best leaders cultivate what's close in order to have those distant results that they're looking for. They don't overlook 
their people. They don't overlook the immediate. They're cultivating their gardens and making those gardens beautiful, a concept that's hardly ever used in connection with business. One business book I read decades ago, I love the title. I still remember the title, Perfecting a Piece of the World. We're not called upon to perfect the world. Nobody can do that. But try to make your little piece of it as good as it can possibly be. Well, that's what patriotism is all about, right? Patriotism is not preferring some places and people just because they happen to be close to me. You know, there was this view of morality we got from Immanuel Kant that uh, morality is utterly universal. There can be no preference for any particular person or relationship, or it doesn't matter if he's my son or my brother or she's my daughter or my wife, everybody should be treated the same. Well, look, the only way human nature really works is to take care of those who are closest to you as preparation for taking care of those who are farther away. That's what I call the inner circle principle, right? There are concentric circles, I imagine, and each circle serves the one that's beyond it, the broader one. And then those broader circles have to return and support the inner the innermost circles. It's a beautiful contribution to the overall good. And I think the best leaders understand that. that that's a wonderful connection between leadership and patriotism, Tom. Um, and I think where a lot of people get hung up today and, and why we, we see this um, almost jingoistic or political party divide of of who owns patriotism, you know, who owns the flag as a symbol, for example. Um, well, I'm reminded of a quote from the British author Robert Aldington. He lived from 1892 to 1962. And he wrote, patriotism is a lively sense of collective responsibility. Ah, Nationalism is a silly cock crowing on its own dunghill. And I think that's what's happened these days is we have, we have swapped out nationalism for patriotism and this notion of collective responsibility. It's just as you laid out there of what a true leader does. It's all about community. And it's all about healthy community contributing to something greater than itself. It's about the, the individual creating, uh, contributing to something greater than himself or herself. And it's about those friendships and networks and communities also contributing to something greater. You know, I think the ancients uh, saw this pretty well. And we've become adrift a bit in our time. And, and I think this often happens. I mean, the, the history of American politics isn't a history of Platonic and Aristotelian beatitude. Uh, there's some rough moments and rough stretches, and we have to recall ourselves. In fact, I even explain in the preface to the new book, The Everyday Patriot, that I am hoping to reclaim the concept of patriotism. The way in my whole career I've tried to recall reclaim the concepts of success and happiness and wisdom and virtue, because as time passes, people lose their sense of what these great ideas really mean. And those of us who study the past have then a chance to recall people to the core insights that the greatest minds and hearts before us have had. And it's something that in our time is certainly greatly needed. It certainly is. And so my ultimate question to you, Tom, is as you've, you've connected leadership and patriotism quite convincingly, I think, and yet patriotism is something that, you know, any not just, it, this isn't just American, but we're, we're talking about the United States for right now, but it's something any American can espouse. Um, this means that we all have to be leaders in some way. Uh, we can't rely on, you know, just quote unquote leaders. Uh, we have to, to kind of start to tend our own gardens. So for people who are not necessarily um uh, enamored with reading or with history, uh, what do you think is a great way for them to start embracing some of the, these concepts that will allow them to redefine patriotism? You know, you, you, you know, reading is great, but you don't have to go back and pour through 
the documents written uh, in the uh, 18th century. Um, you don't have to study the great philosophers of the past if this is beyond the amount of time you have, the, the amount of energy you have at the end of the day, or, or beyond the kind of the training that you had in your own education. I tell people this all the time. That's why philosophers like me are trying to put these ideas into great stories and short books. That's, that's the thing. The philosophers of the past never got the Twitter message that sometimes shorter is better. And in this book, uh, my book, The Everyday Patriot, uh, it's 138 pages. You know, I am in and out fast. I'm sorry, Hegel couldn't clear his throat at 138 pages. You know, the great philosophers of the past often lack the ability of succinctness. But as a philosopher in our day, I know what a hurry everybody's in. So I wanted to write a book that they could read on one airplane flight, or they could read one day in the afternoon at the beach, or on a spare Saturday afternoon in an hour or two. They've got all these ideas from the past that come from a hundred books they didn't have time to read. And I've brought them all the salient bits of insight, of wisdom and practical advice, not just big ideas, but here's what a guy in my community did. Here's what I've tried to do. Here's what a lady who lives near me has done. I give people lots of practical examples in the book about how to vote, not only in every election, but how to vote every day with their time, their attention, their caring, their compassion. Because voting is about, in the etymology of voting, it's about selecting. It's about deciding as selecting of that kaleidoscopic variety of things that could uh, demand our attention every day. One of the few things I can do to make life a little bit better where I live in my garden for the people closest to me in my community, in my nation, in my world, what are those small ways I can perfect my little piece of the world and offer that for the benefit of others? I love that. Practical Philosophy from the Practical Philosopher himself, Tom Morris. The book is The Everyday Patriot, How to Be a Great American Now. You can find it uh, as a paperback and as a Kindle, soon to be a hardcover. Uh, check it out on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. Tom, thanks once again for enlightening us with your wisdom and your practical philosophy. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Scott. Always a pleasure and a joy to philosophize with you. In patriotism, we find the secret to what makes leaders great. The ability to think beyond oneself, to engage others for the benefit of the greater good. Thankfully, we can all be leaders in this regard. Thank you for joining us and for being an advocate for timeless and principled leadership whenever and wherever you find it. I'm Scott Monty. Until next time, may you dream more, learn more, do more, and become more. For you, our leader. <laughs>